Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Mike. Lauren. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you personally have never sought out options for getting an abortion. Oh, we're really going to do this, huh? Yes. Starting the year just with like straight fire? Yes. Well, yes, you are correct. As a gender normative male, I've never had to think about getting an abortion. But since you're also an extremely well-read and thoughtful guy, I know that you are also aware of some of the threats to women's health care that have become more urgent here in the United States. Sadly, yes, I am aware. So this is how we are kicking off the show this year. Not with ChatGPT, not with smartphones, but with Mifepristone, a word that you should all be familiar with. All right, let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I'm Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And we're joined this week by Wired senior writer Kate Nibbs, who is zooming in from Chicago. Kate, our friend of the pod, it is always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm so happy to be kicking off the new year talking to you guys, although I wish it was a slightly more uplifting topic of conversation. Indeed, but it's an important one. So I'm glad we're covering it. So as many of you probably know, in 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. That was the landmark 1973 ruling that protected abortion rights in the United States. And since then, a lot of states have rolled back abortion services or made them outright illegal. And that includes abortion pills like mifepristone. Kate, you just wrote a story for Wired about how women are stockpiling abortion pills in record numbers, even if they aren't currently pregnant. And in your reporting, you also looked into the access gap, where some people who may be the most in need of these kinds of services and medications aren't able to get them. So for the first half of the show, I wanted to talk about the abortion pill specifically. What is mifepristone? So mifepristone is... One abortion pill, there are two though, that's important to point out. When you talk about medication abortions um, or taking the abortion pill, it's a two pill regime. Um, Mifepristone is the first pill that you take. Um, It 
blocks the development of progesterone, which is a hormone that is necessary for the development of an embryo. So once you take it, it sort of halts a pregnancy, um, stops it from progressing any further. Um, after you take that, then you're going to take misoprostol, which is a pill that it, it causes the uterus to contract. And that would basically like spur a miscarriage. So taken together, these two pills are, are what we call medication abortion. And they are now the most common way that people get abortions in the U.S. Um, in recent years, they've become much more popular. And so the fact that mifepristone is now under threat is going to be very important to the future of reproductive health care in, in the United States. How long has medication abortion been around in this country? So mifepristone was um, FDA approved in 2000. And so it's been around for decades. And because it's been around so long, there's been a lot of studies into its safety and efficacy. And it's been proven extremely safe, which is great. In recent years, the reason why it's become so much more commonplace, like in the last decade, is because restrictions on how it's dispensed have changed and it's become a lot easier for people to get. Like in the early 2000s, if you wanted to have a medication abortion, you still had to go see a doctor several times, in fact, and you had to take the pills in front of the doctor and you were still going into a clinic and you were still being monitored in person. And so it was a little more time intensive. Now, in, in recent years, there have been changes and you can get the pills um, via telehealth. So instead of going into a clinic, you could see a doctor or a nurse um, over Zoom and they could have the pill sent to your pharmacy or um, you could just go pick them up real quick at the clinic and wouldn't have to like go in and have a full appointment. So access has greatly improved in the two decades since it's been available in the U.S. So if you use the telehealth option, do you need to somehow prove that you're pregnant? Do you need to get an ultrasound or show a positive pregnancy test or anything like that? I think it depends on the provider's um, generally speaking, you wouldn't have to go in and get a full ultrasound. You might just have positive like at-home pregnancy tests. In some cases, maybe you went to your gynecologist and got a blood test or something, and then you thought about what you wanted to do, and then you're having the conversation. But there's no rule that you have to go get an, an ultrasound or anything like that. Um, and some, so the study that I just wrote about is actually about advanced provision, which is when people get the abortion pills, even though they're not pregnant. And in that case, obviously there wouldn't be any ultrasound because you're, you don't have a need for the pills at the moment. Um, it, it, when, when it first came out, you, there was an advanced provision. You had to be pregnant for them to dispense it, but now you are able to get it even if you're not pregnant at the moment in the same way that like you might by plan B, even though you're not mm -hmm. going to take it that day, just to have on hand, it's mm -hmm. sort of the same concept. So how many states is medication abortion currently legal in? It's kind of hard to answer like exactly definitively on how accessible this medication is because the laws have changed a lot in recent years. Um, I believe it's legal in 21 states totally, and then it's legal in some form in 36 states in Washington, D.C. In states where abortion is banned, obviously, it's illegal too. Um, and some states 
since Roe versus Wade has been overturned and specifically this year, since there were some conflicting court rulings over uh, the legality of telehealth mifepristone, some states have enacted what they're calling shield laws, which protect providers from um, getting in trouble if they end up seeing patients across state lines. Um, and those shield laws are intended to help people uh, maintain access to medication abortion, even if certain states end up restricting access in the future. Um, that's a very long-winded way of saying that basically, I think in every state where abortion is legal still, medication abortion is legal still. Like there's no states where you can only get a surgical abortion, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But in your story, you wrote about an aid group that is actually shipping them from overseas. and Aid so, access. Yes. And so people in the U.S. are able to get those cross-border or actually cross-ocean in this case? Yes. Okay. So aid access is an incredible organization. It's, um, it's run by this doctor named Rebecca Gompertz, who is in Europe. And she's really been a pioneer uh, helping people all over the world get access to abortions. Um, she... You might have heard of her because like the original iteration of this group was called Women on Waves, I believe. And it was a they they operated out of a boat and they would sail the boat around the world and people would go on the boat and get abortions like it, it's wild. And that's still operational, but they've expanded a lot. And Aid Access is the sort of wing of this organization. And they they will ship anyone in America, even if you're in. Louisiana, Mississippi, the states where abortion is basically illegal across the board, they'll still ship you medication. It's not strictly legal. I, I don't want to, I don't know the ins and outs of, of uh, you know, federal mail re regulations, but they're taking a risk in doing so. When, when they are shipping people pills, it's outside of the formal U.S. healthcare system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they are a very well-respected organization and they're, a lot of third parties have verified that like they're sending legitimate pills, um, but it's not uh, the same as like going to see an accredited doctor in the U.S. You are, you are dealing with a foreign organization that is shipping you pills that a doctor in the U.S. would not be able to legally prescribe you. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk more in a little bit about the research that Aid Access has done, which is what you wrote about in Wired. But before we go to break, I just wanted to ask you, because I, I really do think like a lot of people don't have an understanding of how this works. What are the physical and by extension emotional differences between obtaining an abortion in a clinic and an abortion by a pill that you take at home uh, where you might be alone and you might not have a lot of support? Uh, the process is different. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the processes are are definitely different. And it's not that one is better than the other. Like there are cases where having a surgical abortion just makes a lot more sense. Um, medication abortion is really only for very early pregnancies. Like you, you can't have one when you're too far along. You could have a surgical abortion further along. Um the huge benefit of having a medication abortion is it's just significantly less invasive of a procedure. You're not uh, going under, you're not getting numbed. No one's touching your body. You're taking medications that essentially induce a miscarriage, um, which 
obviously isn't the most chill experience in the world for everyone. Like, you know, some people might really benefit from having a plan where there's people around to support them. Some people it's not appropriate for because there might be some sort of complicating factor where it would make more sense for them to go into a clinic. Um, but, it, you know, if people are early on in their pregnancies and choose to end the pregnancy with a medication abortion, in some cases, like they're able to do it with minimum disruption to their daily lives, which is great for people who are already parents, which is a large portion of people who get abortions already have kids. They might not be able to have several days of, of downtime uh, taking these pills. It's just less disruptive to their daily lives, basically. All right, Kate, thanks so much for all of this information. We're going to take a quick break and then be right back with more. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, B as in boy, I, N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Kate, your story on Wired.com this week covers a research study that analyzed over 48,000 requests for abortion medications uh, between the beginning of September 2021 and the end of April 2023. This was information from Aid Access, the organization you mentioned earlier. And there were some startling trends in that data, specifically that the people who might need this advanced provision medication the most aren't always able to access it. Talk about some of these findings. Yeah, so this study um, that came out of the University of Texas, but they used data provided by Aid Access, as you mentioned. Um, when I saw the results, I wasn't shocked. Like they made sense. They they fit the unfolding narrative um, about reproductive healthcare access in the U.S. Um, but they're very good things to point to so people understand what's happening. Like the study compared... Uh, demographics of people who were requesting these pills for advanced provision, which means people who weren't pregnant, but were basically just preparing for the future um, against people who were requesting them because they were pregnant at the moment and needed the pills now. And they found that the groups were, were notably distinct. The people who were just stockpiling the pills in case tended to be significantly older, significantly more wealthy or located in more wealthy areas. Um, but the biggest difference was that they were like overwhelmingly white, whereas it was much more demographically diverse um, in the group of people who needed the pills immediately. And they couldn't make any definitive conclusions about this. But when I was talking to experts, they were all emphasizing that this this points to uh, an access gap that either people don't know about advanced provision, like they just haven't haven't come across it, or they know about it, but it's it's 
out of reach financially. Um, the pills tend to cost money, like even if you need them immediately, they're, they're, they're not like free by default, but there's a lot of organizations, including aid access who will offer like sliding scale or offer financial help of some kind if people need the pills right away. If it's advanced provision, though, you basically always have to pay a few hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. It's a few hundred dollars for the mifepristone and then the follow-up pill as well. Yeah, together, okay. the pills together. Okay. Um, so it's it's a money thing. Is mm-hmm. is a lot of reproductive um, health access comes down to to class barriers. Like if someone has you know five hundred dollars left over for the month after paying rent, et cetera, and they find out they're pregnant and they need an abortion, then they can pay the two hundred dollars or whatever. But if they have that money left over and they're they're like. I, they're not necessarily going to be like, I, I should spend this little money that I have on this pill on the off chance that I need it. So that was a big takeaway from the study, just that advanced provision would be a smart thing for everyone who might get pregnant to to do just to prepare for the worst in case there's a future where abortion access is even more restricted than it is now. Um, but the fact that it costs money makes it harder for people who might benefit from it the most to have access to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other big takeaway from the study was that whenever there was an event uh, that made it clear that there might not be easy abortion access anymore, requests went through the roof. Like after the Dobbs decision leaked and then after it finally came out, in both instances, there were huge spikes. And then last year, when there was conflicting court rulings about mifepristone and it became clear that, that that might be restricted in the future, there was another huge jump. So the study basically just showed clearly that people are really concerned about this. They they want access to this healthcare and they're, they're willing to even spend a, a few hundred dollars on like a just-in-case pill set. So we should talk about the fact that there may be another event coming up that uh, could change the access that people have to abortion in general and abortion pills and clinical abortions specifically. Uh, Tell us what we can look forward to this summer. There is a big case, like there is a big, the next big battle in reproductive healthcare access is going to happen this year. Um, The Supreme Court has agreed to hear a court case that was brought that is specifically about me for Pristone access. So there is a group of um, anti-choice doctors, like it was a few different professional groups of anti-choice doctors that got together and filed a lawsuit in Texas. And it sort of worked its way through the courts. And now the Supreme Court is going to hear it. And it's it's very scary for people who care about healthcare because if uh, these anti-choice uh, activists get their way, um, access to mifepristone could be pretty severely restricted, uh, potentially nationwide. It wouldn't be illegal, right? So the 2000 FDA approval would still be standing. But what this case might change is it might make it, like it might basically dissolve telehealth abortion access as we know it. It might revert to the way things were when you had to go to a clinic and see a doctor to get these medications, which takes away a lot of the advantages of using these medications. Um, And it's scary because 
it's not like it's that's going to be the hard stop and then the anti-choice activists are going to like you know wipe their hands and say we're done here if they win this they're going to keep pushing like the next big court case i i would think would be restricting it even further and maybe going after contraception like this is part of an ongoing and much larger campaign to restrict the autonomy bodily autonomy of our citizens um and so it's it's a big moment it's a scary moment so if, if you are a person who's considering buying or stockpiling these advanced provision medications what's the right thing to do at this moment in time i mean obviously if you need it you need it and you should have access to it but if you're someone who's thinking of quote unquote stockpiling it, um, is there concern about supply and demand? Is that the ethical thing to do when it might be harder for other women to get? Should you be thinking about distributing it if you're not using it? Like, what's the right approach? Well, I'm just saying this as a human being, right? I'm not a medical professional. So I'm definitely, I, I don't want to give advice to people on how to deal with these medications because I'm not qualified to do so. But I will say, I think everyone should be thinking about um, whether it would make sense for them to get these pills and just keep them on hand. When it gets into like giving them to other people, I would certainly be consulting with a doctor since they are safe, but they're still like prescription medications. Um, I would not be super concerned about supply and demand. I mean, obviously don't stockpile like five, 500 boxes of these pills. Like that's bad. But asking for one, that's not a big deal. There's these pills are, there's not a shortage. It's, I know there, there are a lot of um, pharmaceutical shortages right now. So that's like a very valid question and something smart to think about. And maybe it will change in the future, but it's my understanding that these pills are not in short supply. And if you wanted to buy a pack and keep it, you're not like take you're not harming anyone by doing that. You're you're just sort of making preparing yourself. Um, and I would say, you know, like it depends where you live. Um, I am not super concerned about it as someone who lives in Chicago, um, because Illinois is a very, very pro-choice state, and I don't think I would have I don't I don't think that like my personal access is under threat at the moment. Now, a year from now, I might have a different answer for you on that. But um, yeah, so I would say it depends, um, but it's certainly something that everyone of reproductive age who wants uh, control over their body should be considering. Um yeah, and I just want to add two things real quick. Um, the first is that um, there are some organizations that operate outside of the U.S. Um, that are basically like pill mills, and they don't necessarily have doctors behind them. They have access to generic forms of um, medication abortion pills and are willing to ship them into the U.S. And some of them are fine, but some of them are just, you're not totally sure what you're getting and there's not a doctor monitoring you. And I highly recommend that anyone who's thinking about um, ordering pills from abroad, either 
choose aid access, which is highly respected, completely vetted by, you know, it's a great organization or just do due diligence. And there's a website called Plan C that offers a lot of guidance um, about like the provenance of these pills and stuff. Just do do some research before ordering these pills off the internet from a from an international supplier willy-nilly because they are safe, but they're prescription medications. I never want to encourage people to just be taking prescription medications that they bought buy offline. Uh, that would be bad. Um, and the other thing I wanted to quickly say is that I've been reporting on telehealth medication abortions for a few years now. And one thing that quite a few of the providers in the U.S. have told me is that if mifepristone access is curtailed and if they can't supply it anymore, if that happens, they would be willing to offer a misoprostol only medication abortion. So it wouldn't necessarily be completely off the table. But misoprostol doesn't work quite as well as mifepristone plus mifeprostol. Um, and so they don't want to do that because it's below the standard of care that they're currently offering. It would be a last resort situation. But um, I don't want to make it sound like if mifepristone is restricted that all of a sudden no one will have access to medication abortion. It will just be worse access, basically. Thank you so much for that, Kate. Let's take another quick break, and then we will come back with our recommendations. Hackers and cybercriminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click here. Stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines. Satellite. Engine ignition. Click here. And liftoff. Click here. Every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Kate, as our guest of honor, our friend of the pod, what is your recommendation this week? I have a recommendation for a movie. Um, it's called American Fiction, and it's in theaters right now. I was able to see it over the holiday break, and I was so excited to see it in a crowded theater. People were loving it. It's about um, a Black uh, academic writer uh, who's kind of nerdy and he he tends to write books that are a little esoteric and sell horribly. And he gets really frustrated and he sees another writer having great success um, selling books that he thinks are really cringe, basically. And he decides to imitate her and and like her genre and make a book that's basically just like an amalgamation of offensive racial tropes. Um, and then it sells really well. And he ends up becoming like a pseudonymous literary celebrity. And then, so all that's happening. And it's like a really, really funny and sharp parody of like the publishing world and um, like political correctness and 
uh, like DEI culture's excesses. Um, and then it's also just like a really thoughtful and heartwarming family drama too. It's like sort of two films welded together and somehow it all works. And uh, it's very near and dear to my heart because it's um, my former colleague directed it and wrote it. And he was a blogger with me years ago. And now he's a Hollywood pioneer his name's Cord Jefferson. Um, and so I'm just thrilled that the movie's as good as it is. Like I, I had such high hopes because I wanted it to succeed and I had so much fun watching it and I highly recommend it. Awesome. I am totally invested in the story just based on your telling of it. Sounds great. Yes, it is. It is so good. And if you wanted to, there's a, it's based on a book called Erasure by Percival Everett, um, which is also fantastic. And I think it was written in the 90s. Um, if you wanted to read that first, that's if I always love to read the book that the movie is based on and think about them in tandem. Uh, I recommend that too. He's a great writer. He's really prolific. Uh, he has a book coming out in 2024 that's like a new twist on Huckleberry Finn um, called James from the perspective of Jim the Slave. Um, I have a galley and I can't wait to read it. But yeah. The book's great. The movie's great. It's all definitely worth checking out. Awesome. Thank you for that recommendation. Mike, what's yours? I'm also going to recommend a movie, and it's also a movie that I watched over the holiday break. Uh, it's a fantastic movie from Iceland. It's called Godland. One word, Godland. Uh, it is directed by by a person, so I don't know the the writer and director of this movie, so I'm probably going to butcher their name, but uh, it's Helener Palmason directed this movie. It's shot in a really interesting way because it takes place in the late 19th century, and the main character is a priest from Denmark who has to go to Iceland. So he's going to 1800s Iceland and uh, experiencing... A lot of things outside of his comfort zone, let's say. He is also a photographer, so he carries this camera on his back everywhere he goes. And this is like an 1800s camera, so it's like it's you know two pieces. It's like the camera and then all the equipment to develop the photograph because you had to develop the photograph outside of the camera right away. So he's carrying all this gear with him on this journey, and he stops and takes pictures. So the film is very like picturesque, I guess, to use a lazy word, but it is done in a way that is just gorgeous. It's shot on beautiful film stock. It's done in a way that is both very old and like of the time of the story, but also very modern and very 2023, 2024. Um, it's also just a beautiful narrative and it has a lot of subtext. It's in both Danish and Icelandic part of the tension of the movie is that this guy only speaks Danish and he can't really communicate in this new place that he's in, but he's a priest and he has to preach and he has to build a church and he has to get all this stuff done. And it's a giant challenge for him. He's also of course challenged spiritually and like physically because of the environment. Uh, fantastic movie. It's slow. I'm going to mm -hmm. warn you mm -hmm. if you like a lot of action, you won't find it here. It's also, you know, it's two and a half hours. It's in Danish and Icelandic, but it is an absolute treat. I've been recommending this movie to everybody who I know who I think would enjoy it, and they've all been watching it, and I've gotten good reports. Uh, it's 
going to probably be nominated for an Oscar for best foreign film. So I'm sure it'll, you'll have opportunities to see it a plenty in the coming months. Uh, but it's like five or six bucks on the big rental services. And I think it's streaming for free if you're on criterion collection. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Adding it to the list. Excellent. I think is you it going will enjoy to, it. I was going to say, is it going to devastate me like worst person in the world? No. Okay. No, it's not as devastating. I mean, it's, you know, it's a drama, so it's mm-hmm. not necessarily uplifting, but it does have a lot of moments of, of humor and levity in it. There's no mushroom trip in it like there was in <laughs> Worst Best Person scene. World. Uh, What is your recommendation, Lauren? I watched so many movies over break, and I'm not going to recommend any of them. Only because they, like, I can't distinguish. They were all so good. I watched Saltburn, which David, our colleague David, recommended a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I watched Maestro. Mm-hmm. I watched Leave the World Behind. Mm-hmm. I watched an oldie, an old uh, Oscar-nominated film, Banshees of Inishirin. Mm. Uh, oldie. It's like a few years ago. Um, anyway, that was great. That's what everyone should do over break if they have the opportunity to do it. I'm going to pull a little bit of a Galad here. Galad is our pal who used to be on the show who once recommended Sliced Lemons. But he he lives in infamy for that, right? People talk about this. I'm going to recommend the Dunbar Theory. What is the Dunbar theory? <laughs> <laughs> What's that, you ask? The Dunbar theory is a theory that was uh, first proposed, I think, a few decades ago by a British anthropologist that compared the um, size of primate brains with the average number of other beings that the primate would socialize with or spend time with. And the idea is that we as humans really only have the capacity to establish connections with around 150 people. Mm. And beyond that, we get overwhelmed or the ties become looser or it's just not a meaningful connection, right? And there have even been social networks, by the way, built on top of this theory. Like You remember this years ago, a former Facebooker created an app called Path that was based on this idea. It was like taking the vastness of Facebook and shrinking it down and saying, actually, these are the only connections that matter. And towards the end of last year, I made one of those little lists in my Apple Notes in and out. These were like very popular in social media during the break. People were sharing their ideas of what was in and what was what was out for 2023, what was in for 2024. And I determined in my little personal list that I did not share with the world that parasocial relationships are out and the Dunbar theory is in. So it's sort of a prediction, but it's sort of a recommendation, which is maybe this is the year to focus more on meaningful connections with the people closest to you than to feel like you have this one-to-many kind of relationship with like a whole network of people who you don't actually know super well and maybe like cause you anxiety in some way or just you're never really going to know, right? Like focus on the people closest to you. That's my recommendation. That's pretty good. Yeah. So what about very psychologically healthy? (laughs) It it does. What about influencers? What are they supposed to do? I don't know. I mean, influencers are just going to keep hashtag influencing. (laughs) But I even think that says something about the state of social media, right? And how that has shifted. Because if you look at something like TikTok, TikTok really isn't a traditional social network in the sense that like you're using it to connect with people or DM with people, right? It's very much like it's entertainment. It's one to many. You're blasting yourself out to the world. And so maybe the way to think about that is actually that it's entertainment. It's not friendships. 
what you're doing when you're influencing is you're looking to attract as many people as possible, but you're not, you shouldn't do that maybe under the guise of I'm going to have meaningful connections with all these people. You're doing it to entertain them and fill their feeds and it's, it's different. We can categorize that differently, I think. Okay. All right, listeners. So now you know. If you're DMing Lauren and she's not responding, it's because you ain't in her top 150. Right. But it doesn't mean I don't appreciate you. And also, we love your reviews. <laughs> yeah, you're you're all in our 150. You know, I was just going to say, like, what does this parasocial relationship thing mean for, for podcasting? But I think Gadget Lab's the exception. Gadget Lab, we are, we are your friends here. Yes. We're all friends here. And we are your friends. We're your tech friends. Um. Kate, you're in my 150. So thank you so much for joining us. You're in my 150 too. And thanks for having me. <laughs> Mike, you're like in my five. So thank you oh, as so always flattered. for being such a great co-host. Of course. Are you going to be here next week? Uh, no. Next week. Well, I am going to be here next week. The question is, <laughs> you are you going to be here next week? I'm going to CES in Las Vegas. Yes, you are. And so on next week's podcast, what can we expect? We will have a live report from las vegas that we record in a hotel room and then <laughs> ship off to boone uh, so he can edit it and bring it to everybody uh we're going to be talking about all the big trends and everything that's happening at at ces we're going as very far away from gadgets this week next week we're going hardcore straight into gadgets and what are the top trends well the big thing that everybody is expecting is that there's going to be ai and absolutely everything so like you buy the thing, now mm -hmm. it just comes with chat GPT on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's the future we all want. I mean, really. It's it's what Alexa was five years ago at CES. Sure, but you know, chattier. Chattier, but chattier, smarter. Slower. More human-like. <laughs> I look forward to CES five years from now where they're like ships with AGI. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh. first, future. talking toasters, sentient toasters. <laughs> A toaster feels the burn. Oh, God. <laughs> all right. If you've listened this far, thanks to all of you for listening. And I mean it. If you have feedback, leave us a review. I love reading the reviews. You can also find all of us on all the socials. Just check the show notes. We'll link to our accounts. Our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth. Goodbye for now. And we'll be back next week from CES. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.